As Brother Nathan said, it's good to be here and it's good to see each of you here tonight. And I want to echo what he said that uh, we're very happy that you've come to be with us and that you've chosen to be here. We hope that the study of the evening will be a blessing to you. As, as he announced, we're doing the second part of John chapter 4. There's a lot in John chapter 4. Uh, we could probably have about five or six sermons just from this chapter, uh, especially the content that Brother Justin covered for us. And uh, tonight I want to focus on the idea of trust in the Word. And I'm going to ask you to read at some point with me. It's going to be a short reading, uh, but I didn't put this up on the PowerPoint. I'm going to have you turn to Matthew 8 later. Everything else will be up on the PowerPoint for your convenience. Before we actually dive into the text, uh, I want to go into just a quick reminder of where we're at, why we're talking about what we're talking about, to give everything some context. So... Uh, Brother Justin mentioned how much he loved this map, and it was funny because when he was showing me that map, he, he was about to turn uh, and show me his map, and I said, well, I like this one. He said, that's my map, so, so kindred spirits, I guess, but uh, it, it is a very good map. It's very visual. I'm going to blow some of it up just in a moment, uh, but just to give us an idea of where we're at, uh, where Justin, Brother Justin left us was right here in a city called Sakar. In the area of Samaria. Jesus was having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, uh, or what we refer to as Jacob's well. And we're going to talk about that woman a little bit more tonight and also about the impact that she had on Samaria and that area in Samaria. Down here at the bottom is Judea. This is where the southern kingdom of Judah was once the kingdom divided. This was the northern kingdom, this being the southern kingdom. Jerusalem being right here, Jesus has actually just been down here in this area, Judea, performing signs before he makes his way back up toward Galilee, but it tells us that on the way to Galilee, he must needs go through, I'm quoting King James there, through Samaria, and so he ends up in this area right here, and this city, Sakar, actually used to have a different name, it was known as Shechem, uh, I'm going to say Shechem, that's not the proper pronunciation, but I'm going to say Shechem because I'm from West Texas and I can. Uh, but Shechem has a lot of history and I want to talk about the history of Shechem. And I think it will help us understand some of why we're having this conversation. But before we do that, we're going to notice three th different places tonight. Because after Jesus leaves Samaria, after staying there for a couple days, he goes back to Cana. And Cana is where the wedding was. That's where he turned the water into wine. And, and after uh, he goes to Cana, he meets a man from Capernaum. And again, you notice Capernaum is northeast of Canaan. Now, Jesus isn't going to go to Capernaum. I'm just pointing that out for you. Because again, we're going to have this geographical truth in this chapter where this man says, come down to Capernaum. And then he refers to it again. And then John, as he narrates, says, he went down to Capernaum. And again, if we're thinking of maps, we're probably thinking northeast is not down. Well, it's not if you're driving but it is if you're walking and you're going from Cana over to uh, the Galilean Sea because it drops drastically in elevation. And so that's the reason that it says down. So don't be confused by that if you know where that's at. Now, Cana to Capernaum is about 16 and a half miles. And uh, that's going to become significant. I want you to remember that, but I just want to throw that out there right now while we're looking at the map so you recognize uh, where they're at in the distance. Because... Later that's going to come into play as Jesus meets a man and this man is going back home. So hold on to that. It's about 16 and a half miles. Now, that's about three and a half miles short of what they would refer to as a day's journey. 
And it's just like it sounds. That's about how long a person could travel in a day with a mule or walking. So uh, keep that in mind. Now this is not a very good map, so I'm sorry, but it's an illustration of something. This is Jacob's well down here. This is the city of Shechem, or as it's called here one time in the New Testament, Sikar. And the reason I want to show you this is because here's the city. This is where the disciples are as Jesus is out here at Jacob's well talking to the woman of Samaria. It makes sense that they would meet her on the south end of town because they're coming up from Judea heading toward Galilee. And as he runs into her, I want you to see that they're not, it's not like they're five miles outside the city. It's not that far. Uh, it's, it's just right outside the city this well is. And there's a reason that they set up the city in this place because this well was their source of life. You die out in Samaria without water. You die anywhere without water for that matter. But they relied on that well as a source of life. Hence why Jesus has the conversation with her about life because that well was their life source. And he told her, I've got a different life source and she was curious about that, not understanding he was actually talking about something spiritual. And so she was confused. And we're going to see that again tonight. And again, that's a common theme through this Gospel of John is Jesus gives spiritual teaching and people have a physical, carnal lens and they're, they're thinking about things wrongly just simply because that's, that's who we are. We're, we're people and we live in a physical world with things we can touch and taste and smell and hear. And, and so it's, it's easy for us to take a physical understanding of things at all times. So very literal. But I just want you to see, and again, that's not very good, but if you can see all that conglomerated uh, nothingness up there, that's the city. So just take my word for it. Okay, so I want to back up just for a moment before we jump into verse 30 and pick up uh, this end of these, this conversation that Jesus was having with the Samaritan woman. They talked about a lot of things. And then it, the subject changes, and she begins to talk about worship. Now, I think she talked about worship because Jesus brought up her sinful lifestyle. And rather than talk about that and address it, she goes, let's talk about worship and about the difference between us and you. And, you know, that, that's kind of common, you know. People don't want to talk about their sin. And, and so she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. Now, I want to back up just for a minute. When she says this mountain... Uh, there's a couple of mountains that are really close. I'm, I'm not up here, we're down here. There's this mountain of Gerizim or Gerizim, and then there's Mount Ebal. Now, these have some Old Testament significance too. If you remember, there was a time during the, the ministry of Joshua when God called five of the tribes to go up on one mountain and five on the other, and he said, those on, Jer on uh, Jerizim, you're going to talk about the blessings if you keep this law. And those on this mountain of Mount Ebal, you're going to talk about the curses if you don't keep it. So it's about obedience and disobedience. They had great significance for the people of Israel. But what we're going to see is that the, the significance of these mountains drastically changed. And the reason why is because of the Samaritans. So let's get back to our conversation. So she is noting that our fathers, our ancestors, worshipped in this mountain. And you say that Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. What's her focus on? The place. She wants to talk about where's the right place to worship. And here's what Jesus says. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So she wants to talk about the where of worship. And Jesus probably blew her mind by saying, you don't know what you worship. And let's think about this. If you don't know what you worship, the where doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter whether you're actually in the temple or on the mountain. If you don't understand who God is and what you're worshiping, where is irrelevant? She thinks where is important. Jesus says, you don't even know who the Father is. You don't know who the Father is. Now, why does he say that? Well, notice verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. He's saying, okay, if you want to talk about the Jews and y'all, well, the Jews have an understanding of what they worship. They have the truth. And there's a reason why she didn't know what she was worshiping. And so I'm going to take you through some brief history here about Shechem and the area of Samaria. Shechem is the place in Genesis 12 where God first appeared to Abraham after he entered the promised land. Very significant place. In fact, his ancestors come back to this area, Shechem, several different times. Shechem is where Jacob erected an altar after reconciling with Esau. You remember him and Esau, they parted ways. They were at odds. They were enemies because of Jacob stealing the birthright and then stealing the father's blessing at the end of his life. And so they... they had all this tension between them they finally came out together and reconciled and when they came to this city they actually uh, Jacob builds an altar and guess what it's called he names the altar the God of Israel now keep this in mind at that time there's only one Israel and it's Jacob when he said God of Israel he didn't mean God of the nation of Israel there was no nation of Israel his name was Israel he was saying my God I'm building an altar to my God and that was in Shechem where he built this altar the bones of Joseph. After Joseph dies in Egyptian bondage, he wants to be buried with the fathers. So what do they do? They carry his bones back, and where do they bury him? Right here. And, and you couldn't see it on that map, but there's actually a, a notated place on that map where Joseph's bones are born, uh, uh, were buried. Rather, Joshua sets up a stone of witness as a mark of the covenant. Now, everybody in here probably knows this conversation Joshua has in Joshua 24. That's where we get our wall decor from, where it says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, there was a lot more to that conversation. And what Joshua was telling them is you need to make a choice today, whether you're going to serve the God uh, that brought you out of the land of Egypt, or you're going to serve the gods that your father served in the land of Egypt. You've got to make a choice today. And so they made a choice. He said, all right, well, I'm going to put this big stone up here, and it's going to be a mark or a sign or a seal of the covenant that you just made. And he called it the stone of witness. And so anytime somebody looked at that big giant rock that's still in existence today in Shechem. Now, she, it's not called Shechem now. It's got a different name. But anytime that you go there, there's still this big rock there. And it was called the stone of witness. And it was meant so that people, when they saw it, they went, I made a covenant. And I'm going to follow God. Well, let me tell you something. That didn't happen. Good, good as it, its intentions may have been, that rock ended up being something it was not intended to be. And it just became another part of their paganism and idolatry. But this is sort of, we're starting to see that there's some rich history with Shechem, but there's also some kind of dark history, and we're not going to delve into all that tonight. But Rehoboam actually divides the kingdom of Israel here in Shechem. And you may remember that Rehoboam, uh, he become, he's about to become king, and he goes and he seeks counsel from the elders, and they say, well, here's what you need to do. You need to tell them you're not going to be anything like your father. You're going to be kind, and you're going to lighten their burden. And so then he goes and talks to a bunch of his contemporaries, his young people that are the same age as him, and they say, oh, no, that's not what you need to do. You need to go in there and tell them you're going to be far worse than Solomon ever was. You tell him that your little finger is going to be thicker than your father's wrist. In other words, if you think dad was bad, well, I'm going to be a lot worse. Well, guess whose advice he took? 
the young people's advice. So he goes in there and he tells Israel, and he's, he told them, I'll give you an answer after three days. And he comes after three days and he says, I'm going to be worse than my father. And they said, well, we're not going to serve you anymore. In fact, we don't want to have anything to do with the house of David anymore. And so that's what created the northern kingdom. And so Jeroboam, which was one of Solomon's servants, ends up going into the northern kingdom and he takes the throne over the ten tribes that go to the north, Rehoboam to the south. Rehoboam becomes completely wicked, but guess where all that happens? It's divided right here at Shechem. This is a sore spot for Israel, this place is. Bad things happen there, very bad things. And it just got worse because Jeroboam, he says, you know... It might come a time when all these people that are now under my reign might want to go back and be part of the house of David again. So I'm going to make sure they don't want to go back to the temple. So what's he do? He makes two golden calves and says, Israel, these are your gods now. Well, that's a great solution, right? You know, let's give them a different god so they won't want to go to Jerusalem. That was a terrible solution. Well, guess what Israel ended up doing? Worshiping idols. You know, you'd think the people wouldn't be dense enough to go, we're not going to worship these cats. Don't you remember what happened when we came out of Egypt? But no, they just went right along with it. Then Israel is taken away by Assyria. And when they're taken away and taken captive by Assyria, and I think this is in the 700s B.C., and if I'm not correct, you might ask Nathan. He probably knows. But uh, we're talking a long time before Christ comes. Assyria comes and they take Israel captive. And when they do that, Assyria moves into this, the area of Samaria. And God is upset because they bring all their idols into the land. So he actually sends lions, and the lions come into the land, and they start killing uh, these Assyrians. And so they go back to the king, and they said, Hey, we need to honor their God because he sent lions in to kill us. And so he says, Okay, well, go find one of the priests that we took captive, and he'll tell us all about their God, and we'll start honoring their God, and he'll take away these lions. Well, that may sound noble, but here's what they meant by that. We're not going to quit worshiping our gods. We're just going to also worship that God, hoping that we'll appease him. Well, it didn't. But here's the problem. They come into the land, and they bring, after, after the kings try to destroy all the idols that Jeroboam and other kings raised up, these Assyrians bring them all back in, and it stays there. And so this woman of Samaria that Jesus says, you don't know what you worship, that's where she's from. She's from this land where really religion is convoluted and there's a hint of Judaism here and there's a sum about the God of Israel but there's also a bunch of garbage about idols and false gods and so you've got this big mash of a bunch of religions together. That's where she's from and that's why Jesus says you don't know what you worship. And this temple that she's talking about, she didn't mention the temple but they erected a temple during the intertestamental age which is that period of silence that we've been talking about between Malachi and and Jesus, uh, John the Baptist coming on the scene, they've actually built a temple up on Mount Gerizim. That's what she's talking about. She has no idea what's going on there. So keep that in mind. This is why the Jews hated the Samaritans. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I think they were wrong. Their attitude was terrible. The way they treated the Samaritans, we would just call it racism because that's what it was. They were racist against the Samaritans. They discriminated against them. They stereotyped them. They called them dogs. They didn't even think they were human. That's who Jesus is talking to. What did Jesus treat her as? A person with a soul who was valuable and important. He, he wasn't chiding her. He wasn't being condescending. He was teaching her the truth. As down as we would look on this woman for her lifestyle, I'll tell you what Jesus did. He gave her his time. He gave her his word. And he showed her love and compassion and kindness. Because she needs God. And she, she thinks she has him but she doesn't even know who he is.
So the woman leaves her water pot and she runs to the city or she goes into the city and she says to all the people, come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is he? And they left the city and they were coming to him. That's these men. They're coming out to the well, out to Jacob's well to find Jesus. Well, what's Jesus doing at the well? Waiting on them. He knows where she's going. He knows what's about to happen. But meanwhile, while the disciples are in town, and that's the reason Jesus is there alone anyway, is because they go into town to get food. I don't know if you remember that early in the chapter. They're in Saqqar trying to find food because they don't carry knapsacks full of food and all that. And so they're going to get food, and Jesus is out here. And so when they come back, they said, Rabbi, eat something because they're back with the food. And so Jesus says, I have food. I have food to eat that you don't know about. Now, What's running through their mind? Where'd you get food? You know, this is just like when Jesus tells this woman, I've got living water. And she says, you don't have anything to get water out of the well. How can you possibly have water? They're thinking the same. And and here's what they said. No one brought him anything to eat, did he? They're going, well, who brought? He's got food. Well, did you bring him food? Who, Who snuck him some food? Jesus is not saying I've got food to eat. Well, that's what he said, but that's not what he meant. And notice what he tells him in the next verse. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, did I skip a verse? I skipped a verse. Well, we're going to read that. Hopefully that doesn't mean they're out of order. All right. All right. We're in John chapter 4. I skipped verse 34. Probably skipped the most important verse in the chapter. (laughs) Didn't put it up there. Okay. John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, what did he mean by that? My food. What is food? What will happen if we quit eating? We die, right? Food is what sustains us, just like water sustains us. And Jesus says, I have food. I don't, I'm, I, yeah, thanks guys. <laughs> you brought me food. I've got food. What sustains me is to do the will of the Father. What sustains me is to finish the work that he gave me. That's my focus. That's what's important. That's what keeps me going. And then he says this. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Let me tell you something about Samaria. It was not farming land. They wouldn't have looked around and saw a big crop all around them. He wasn't talking about the fields. Maybe they can look off toward the city and this woman and these people are coming toward them. But that's the harvest he's talking about. Not a harvest of land, but a harvest of hearts harvest of people and he said the fields are white you know this is a very simple concept you plant you sow and then about four months later there's a harvest that's what he says he said you get that and he says in verse 36 he who reaps receives wages you get paid if you reap right who's going to be reaping well he tells us he says and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together for in this the saying is true one sows and another reaps I sent you My disciples to reap. To reap what? That for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you've entered into their labors. What in the world is he talking about? I'm sure they had no clue. What did he start with? My food is to do the work that God has sent me to do and to finish that work. What was Jesus doing? He was sowing. And one day they were going to reap. They weren't sowing. In fact, there was about to be a harvest that was going to, or at least some sowing that was starting And the woman that Jesus was having the conversation, she was the one doing the sowing there. They went to get food and bring it back. Does that mean the reaping's not important? No, he said the reapers had the reward and the fields are white. 
and there's a harvest coming. Now notice the next verse. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all I ever did. I want you to think about this. This is a woman that Jesus looked at her and he said, go call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. He says, you have rightly said I have no husband for you've had five husbands. The man you're with right now is not your husband. Let me ask you a question. What would our modern society think of a woman like that? You think she'd have credibility, religious credibility? Probably not. But we're in Samaria. I mean, maybe that type of behavior is acceptable. I mean, who knows? But I'll tell you this. Whatever she said to them got their attention. And I think I know why. She asked Jesus, or she told Jesus, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. You know what that tells me? As messed up as the Samaritans were, they were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah. And when she goes back and she says, is this not the Messiah? That got their attention. And guess what it says? They believed her testimony. And when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Keep in mind, they believed because of her, because of what she said. They hadn't met Jesus. They hadn't heard Jesus speak yet, but they believed. But then it says, and many more believe because of his own word. So that's different. They believe what she said about Jesus, but now they believe what Jesus said about Jesus. And it says in verse 42, Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. How many miracles did Jesus do in that two days? Zero. He didn't do any miracles in Samaria. What did he do? He just taught them the truth, and they believed it. You want to see the harvest? It came later. In Acts chapter 8, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Now the signs have come. Because God sent them out to confirm the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'll tell you, Jesus was sowing right there around that well and preparing Samaria for what was to come. And the apostles came in and reaped. And guess who shows up on the scene? Peter and John come into the scene later. And these people were saved. And that work started not here, but earlier. And they were watching. They were looking for the Messiah to come. And they received that message. Now after those two days were up, Jesus goes and he goes back to Galilee. This is Jesus' home area. And Jesus makes a note. Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. This is not the only time that this is actually said. Uh, this is said in other gospels as well. That, that among Jesus' kinsmen, they didn't believe in him. In fact, we're going to hit that in John chapter 7 again. That, that his brethren, his own kinsmen, did not believe what he claimed about himself. But Jesus goes into Galilee. And when he came to Galilee, it says in verse 45, the Galileans received him having seen all the things he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. Look, he's already been up there. But he goes down for the feast, and these Galileans who know him see him in Jerusalem, and they start seeing the signs that he's doing. And now they believe. Now they believe. So here's what Jesus tells them. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So they go back to Galilee, and guess what? It is spreading like wildfire, what Jesus can do. It goes all the way, you know, 16 miles, 16 and a half miles to Capernaum. This guy hears Jesus is coming to Galilee, and he goes. And he finds him, and he says, my son is about to die. Why does he, he come to Jesus? He believes. I mean, he has to have some type of belief, right? 
I mean, why else even come there? I mean, your son's dying at home. You, you run the possibility of leaving and him passing away while you're gone. I mean, he's obviously got some type of belief in Jesus, right? Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. You think he's just talking to him, or maybe he's saying that because all the Galileans rejected him. A prophet doesn't have honor in his own country unless they see signs, and then they believe. But you know what the Samaritans didn't need? They didn't need a sign. But who looked down on who? You might think, well, the Galileans weren't looked at by the Jews either. Yeah, but the Galileans thought the Samaritans were dogs too. See, there was Jews, and then there were Galileans, and then there were Samaritans. And then the heathens were probably somewhere right here. But they didn't need a sign. But the Galileans who went to the feast, who were there in the right place to worship, they needed a sign. But not this man. We'll get back to that in just a moment. I want to back up for just a moment. And I want to just take note of this one more time. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, not because of the words that he spoke, but having seen the things that he did. Now, I asked you, I wanted you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8, we're just going to read a few verses here, starting in verse 5, Matthew 8, verse 5. It says, now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him. Understand, this is a Roman soldier. This is a Roman soldier. He is not of the seed of Abraham physically. He wasn't circumcised the eighth day. This is not a man born in Israel. This is a Roman soldier. But he comes to Jesus pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Let me tell you something. That's a lot of faith. Jesus offers to come to his house to heal this man. He says, you don't have to do that. You don't have to come to my house. I mean, what? This, this guy thinks you can heal him and you're not even there? Yeah, that's what he believes. And here's why he believes it. Notice his explanation of Jesus. Verse 9, For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to the one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found so great faith, not even in Israel. Jesus says, I have not seen this type of faith out of the nation of Israel. I'm seeing it in a centurion, a Roman. Why was his faith great? Because I'll tell you what his faith was in. Jesus. Listen, understand what he's saying. He says, I'm a man under authority. I understand how authority works. If you've got authority... And you tell somebody that's under your authority, go, what do they do? They go. Why? Because you have authority over them. If you say come, they come. If you say do this, they go do it because you have authority. What's he saying? Jesus, I understand you have authority over the body. You have authority over diseases. And if you say he'll be healed, he'll be healed. You just speak a word. You just say the word, and I know it'll be done because you have authority. Nobody else got that. We get that, right? Hopefully we get that. Jesus had authority. What did this man seen? It doesn't tell us. But I'll tell you, Jesus said, your faith is great. Your faith in the power of the word, the authoritative word, is great. It is great. Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Then the nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. This man's a little different, isn't he? That centurion said, you don't have to come, Jesus. This man says, you've got to come to my house. Before my child dies, Jesus said, go your way, your son lives. Let me ask you a question. If you went to the healer and your child was at home dying and he says, hey, just go home, he's fine. 
What's running through your mind? I don't know what was running through his mind, but I know this. He went home. He didn't say, no, you've got to come with me. No, I've got to see it. No, you've you got to go. He just left. Why? Because he believed. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Let me ask you a question. Is God's word good enough for you? Is it good enough for you? Or does everything have to go your way? You have to see God's blessings in your life. And we hear about that a lot, don't we? I hope you do see God's blessings in your life. But I, I hope you understand what I mean by that. Because sometimes things just don't go right. It doesn't matter. And I'll tell you what this man trusted. He trusted that Jesus was honest and he was telling the truth. That his promise would come true. Jesus says, go your way. Your son lives. You know, we talk about faith as believing. But I'll tell you, faith is much deeper than that. I'll tell you what faith really is. It's trust. That's what it is. It's trust. That's why Jesus often chided the Jews for needing to see a sign. Because it's more than just, well, I think you can do that, or I believe that you did that. They didn't trust him. When, he, when they followed him after he fed them, he said, the only reason you're here is because you ate and your bellies were full. And you know what they were provoking him with? What sign shall you show us that we may believe? Moses gave the people bread. Yeah, he saw right through that manipulation. Oh, they believed he was powerful, but they didn't trust him. But I'll tell you, the Samaritans took him at his word. They trusted him. This man took Jesus at his word. He trusted him. And as he was going down, there it is again, as he was going down, he's going northeast, he's going down, his servants met him and told him, your son lives. He didn't even make it home. They were so excited that his son was alive. They, they, it was at the point of death. He's about to die. And it says, then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. You know, I get that. Your son is alive. And he says, okay, what time did that happen? Listen, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Yesterday. 16 miles at 1 o'clock in the afternoon is when he was talking to Jesus. And he didn't make it home till the next day. But he didn't have to make it home because he was met with wonderful news. So when he heard it, the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. Didn't he believe before? Yes, he did. But I'll tell you, just because you believe now doesn't mean that your belief will always be the same. His faith was strengthened. Just like when the Samaritans went out to see Jesus because of the, the word of the woman. They believed, but when they heard Jesus, their faith was different. And I want you to know something. You've got to have your own faith. You've got to have your own faith. See, they were riding off of the faith of what the woman said. We can't write off mom and dad's faith all of our life. We've got to have our own faith. We need to look at God's word for ourselves and believe for ourselves and trust the things that Jesus says and us believe because it's what Jesus said, not just because it's what mom and dad said or grandma and grandpa or whoever. These people found their own faith. This man believed what Jesus said, but when he heard, he knew. He knew it. The chapter ends with this saying. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Okay, so we started out our intro to John talking about there are seven signs in the book of John. Now, that's seven specific signs that are mentioned, but don't get confused by that. They're not numbered. We got the beginning of signs in John 2, and then we've got the second sign here. But there's not a third sign, a fourth sign, a fifth sign, a sixth sign, a seventh sign. It doesn't continue like that. Here's why I'm telling you this. This is not saying this is the second sign that Jesus did. No, it's the second sign he did where? In Galilee. In this place where he had not made himself manifest. 
The first sign was the first sign he did in Galilee. This is the second sign he did in Galilee. He did lots of signs in Judea and Jerusalem. Remember, that's why the Galileans believed. This was the second one that he did in his home area. We're going to see more later, but this is the second one. So the theme of this chapter, what is it? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Jesus is truth. He is life, and we must trust him. And when we're, when we're looking for something greater than that, friends, that's not faith. That's just human nature. If Jesus was to come and ascend down here and show himself and make himself manifest, and, and we all believed in Jesus because he did that, there's no virtue in that. We just see it. The real virtue is that we walk by faith, not by sight. That we trust in God's promises, not in what we can see and what we can touch. For instance, tonight, if you believe in Jesus Christ, I mean believe in Jesus Christ. He wants to give you everlasting life. And if you don't have that, he wants to give you that. And we want to help you with that. So tonight, if you're not a child of God, we want to help you become one. Maybe you are a child of God and you've lost your trust. Maybe your faith has wavered. Well, the Father knows that already. And I tell you, don't run from him, run to him. And if you need us to help you with that tonight and taking a need before him, we would love to do that for you. Come have a seat as we stand and we sing.